Welcome to Season 2 of EdTech Insiders, where we talk to the most interesting thought leaders, founders, entrepreneurs, educators, and investors driving the future of education technology. I'm your host, Alex Sarlin, an EdTech veteran with over 10 years of experience at top EdTech companies. Greg Bybee is the co-founder and CEO of Avella Education and the co-founder of Polyscribe. Greg was an early employee at NovoEd, where he ultimately ran every business function from marketing to business development and customer success, and ultimately helped sell the company to Fidelity. He was also a fellow at New Schools Venture Fund, the first product manager at Coursera, an advisor to RenRen's expansion into education, the lead for VMware's cloud suite launch, and a strategic counselor to Fortune 500 executives at McKinsey, as well as an advisor and mentor to several education organizations and tech startups, including Vendition, Viri, High Counselor, and Rutgers University. Avella's mission is to increase equitable access to education. Avella offers a modern application and enrollment system for schools, districts, and mission-driven organizations, which focuses on empowering families and enabling data-driven decisions. Greg Bybee, welcome to EdTech Insiders. Alex, it's great to be here. Thank you. So, Greg, you have a really interesting career in EdTech. We've known each other for quite a while. Give our listeners a little bit of an overview of your journey through a lot of different interesting companies and different roles in the EdTech space. Well, I sort of consider myself uh, an education technologist. You know, I've been really passionate about innovating in education and government. You know, started my career in traditional tech and consulting, but very quickly realized my heart was in education. Uh, went back to get a master's of ed, and then was very fortunate to be at Stanford you know, during the time of Coursera, and had the opportunity to intern there early on as a product manager. Uh, and then since have had the opportunity to work with a variety of innovative ed tech organizations including NovoEd for about five years, helping to build that online learning platform and, and ultimately sell it. Uh, and then since then, started a couple of companies, one in the government technology space called Polyscribe that helps elected officials communicate with their constituents and help educate them about policy decisions. And then most recently, Avella. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about Avella. It's a really interesting platform really to support schools in matching schools to students and students to schools. Give us an overview of how Avella works. I'd love to. I mean, I would say our ultimate focus is on increasing equity and access to education. Uh, We believe that there's a lot of great educational opportunities out there from traditional schools to alternative models, but not everyone knows about them. And it's often hard to get into them. And we're seeing a proliferation of options that's quite overwhelming for families. And so ultimately, what we want to build is a single one-click application for all things education. So we want a parent to be able to come onto our platform, you know, while on the bus between jobs, holding a child in one hand and on their mobile device, figure out, you know, what program would be best for their child, apply to that program, and then track the status of those applications. So, you know, ultimately, we want to be kind of this universal one-click for everything from daycare to after-school programs to enrichment programs, CTE, K-12 programs. But we're really starting out with large urban pre-K-12 enrollment. We sell directly to large school districts and become their kind of application and enrollment management system. 
And your focus is on equity. The technology itself is informed by a Nobel Prize winning economist and sort of economic theory of how to do matching. Tell us a little bit about that background. It's such an unusual partner for an ed tech company. Yeah, and it's actually, it's sort of an awesome intersection of a lot of my interests. And I was a math major in college and have always been fascinated about kind of the the quantitative analysis side of things. And so my co-founders are two professors of economics from MIT who study, you know, one of them really studies enrollment algorithms, as you mentioned, kind of matching market design, and the other studies causal inference and econometrics and how do you leverage this information to make inferences about the quality of schools and the impact that a school had on a child. And, you know, my co-founder's advisor, Al Roth, was sort of famous for taking a lot of these early algorithms around matchmaking. And actually, let me back up on that, because I think that's relevant. So when we say matchmaking, we don't mean necessarily finding the best fit for the right person immediately. That comes later. What we mean is, given tens of thousands of people and you know hundreds of schools, how do we find the best system-wide solution to put every kid into the right school? And this is a really complicated problem because there's a lot of different preferences and priorities. You know, the naive way to do it is first come, first serve. But that, of course, is highly inequitable. It means families with privilege that can either wait in line or can, can be there at the start, get their first choice. Another naive approach is to have neighborhood schools. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. You want to minimize your commute to school and you want to feel like you have a relationship with the school in your community. But this also means that wealthier neighborhoods are going to end up with wealthier schools. The schools are going to perform better because those families have additional resources to invest in both the schools and the students. And then they're going to get more resources. and You kind of get this positive spiral, but it also means lower income neighborhoods have a negative spiral and those schools tend to underperform which is also clearly inequitable because the whole point of our public education system is to bridge that achievement gap and give everyone an equal playing field and sort of and educate you know the populace but if starting from day 1 the quality of your education is determined by your zip code and therefore your socioeconomic status you know clearly that's not the solution we're looking for and so the sort of next solution people come to is like okay well let's have a broader system where people can express their preferences, can rank the schools they want to go to, and we can take into account a variety of factors, including proximity to schools, so we can optimize around transportation, but also including diversity goals, and including maybe if your sibling goes to a school, there's a reason why you might want to go there as well. And so that now requires, you know, sort of complicated algorithms to think about. And my co-founder's advisor won the Nobel Prize for coming up with a system that actually gets used for things like kidney matching and the medical residency program. And my co-founder, Parag Pathak, so he started thinking, well, couldn't we apply some of that work to K-12 education? And so he spent the last 20 years or so working with districts like New York City, Denver, Chicago, New Orleans to design their enrollment lotteries and the algorithms that are used to assign kids to schools. And then my other co-founder, Josh Angerist actually figured out, well, given that there's a little bit of a lottery here, we can actually use that to help measure the quality of schools. Interesting thing to think about there, just in terms of how in hard sciences, you're able to do random controlled trials, you know, a placebo group and a treatment group. And then you compare the, you know, the difference between the two groups. That doesn't work in the social sciences. You can't randomly assign kids to schools. There's a lot of preferences and factors you have to consider. But what he realized was that there is a little bit of like natural experiments going on public school assignment. And so he actually looks at that to measure the, you know, the true value add of a school. 
But yeah, so Josh and Prague had been working in this space for districts for a while, but quickly realized that in order to really scale this impact across the you know, 15,000 districts in the country, that this needed to be really in software. And so that's where the idea for Abella came was let's create an enrollment system that bakes in these best practice algorithms. And then since we did this, Josh actually won the Nobel Prize himself for some of those. And Prague had won the John Bates Clark Medal. So I feel very fortunate to, to be able to work with both of them. Yeah, it really is amazing. So just to make sure I'm understanding and our listeners are, Avella sort of incorporates these matchmaking algorithms, these ways to combine multiple factors, including, as you say, proximity, whether a sibling goes to the school, a number of different factors to be able to help both sides, help both families and parents and schools sort of optimize and find the right mix and match of students and schools. Am I close? Yeah, you're very close. And I'll say two things on it. One, because I think it's probably interesting to your listeners, is when we started Avella, and actually, you know, funny fact, the original name was Matchmaker Information Technologies or MatchTech. You know, we thought the product market fit, you know, our thesis was that it was all in the matching, that we were going to bring this matching technology to school districts, and that would be the product. And it turned out that it was super exciting to districts, but just wasn't quite enough. We didn't have product market fit. Because they said, well, we, we have this whole, there's a lot to enrollment, right? There's the application form, there's the school finder, there's the process and the workflows and the verification of eligibility. And the matching piece is sort of just, you know, it's, it's a very, very important piece of it, but it's just one part. And so Avella actually, you know, when we renamed to Avella and evolved the company into being really an end-to-end application and enrollment management system. So what we did is we actually... We have really, we think of it as one main product, which is Avella Enroll, the whole suite. But we have sort of three sub-products within that, Avella Explore, which is our school finder tool, which helps families find the right schools for their kids, you know, based on a variety of factors. They can look at things like, you know, special education programs, IEP offerings, after school programs, what sports they offer, what AP classes they offer, what the class size is. So they're really able to navigate the system and also understand the requirements, the deadlines, the application processes. The second product is Avella Apply, which is the actual application system. Um, That's the biggest one because that's everything the parent sees to actually fill out the application, as well as the back end for the administrators to review those applications and make decisions. And that's, you know, we're innovating a lot there right now to have ideas where we want to make it, like I said, one-click apply, where we store information on behalf of the families Kind of like, you know, Apple Pay or Chrome's autocomplete, where it's like you can fill out the application, send all the information, and we'll even automatically verify things like residency or income. And then the third product is Avella Match. And that's that lottery tool that you're alluding to where the school district or the charter school or the nonprofit can put in these various factors and then run that lottery. And that's, you know, definitely our, you know, most distinctive, I would say, feature, the thing that like no one else in the world can do that, you know, I can confidently say we're the best in the world at. And there's a lot that goes into it. And I'll sort of say a little on that in case it's interesting. But you can imagine a common approach is, hey, we want to give the most number of families their first choice. That's something that a, you know, someone running for school board might say, and it's a very well-intentioned statement. And a lot of people can get behind that. Yeah, let's give the most number of people their first choice. The problem is this results in a very gameable system because we've probably all been in situations like this where you're like, well, my first choice is this really high demand, highly competitive program that I know a lot of people are going to apply to. So maybe I'm actually better off ranking my second or third preference as my first so that I've got a higher chance of getting it. 
well, this is what we call, you know, a strategy or sort of gameable. Well, what happens is two things. One, more privileged families understand how these kind of games and systems work. They often have Facebook groups and communities that are sharing tips. In fact, there's a lot of stories in cities where like, you know, wealthy families get together and actually share what they're ranking and they kind of strategize. But the second thing that happens is who can take risks? If you're a family with a lot of privilege, you're able to take a risk. You're able to shoot for the stars and rank your first choice school first. Why? Because if you don't get it, you have other options. You know, what I like to say is school choice exists and always has and always will for families with privilege. And so the question is, do we want to also give some of that choice and opportunity to other families? Because if a family of privilege doesn't get their first choice public school, they're going to go to a private school or they're going to move. And they're going to go to a district where they're guaranteed admission based on their zip code. And so what happens is they're able to rank that school first. And then other families might not. They have to like rank their third choice as their first choice. They'll end up getting it. But now we've basically had it where families of privilege all get the best, you know, kind of, I won't say best because that's a big part of our research is it's not necessarily the best, but the most desirable school they'll get. And then families that don't have that privilege will all get the less desirable school. And so that's where the algorithms actually really help bring in equity for the families that they're able to, you know, truly rank the schools that they want without fear of bias or of that sort of strategy. And then the system actually tries to find the best system-wide solution. And so it's not just getting the most number of people under their first choice, but it's actually making sure that there is no, what we call justified envy. There's no two people that would like to switch who could both be better off, you know, sort of a Pareto efficient outcome or kind of a Nash equilibrium in a way is to the game. Yeah, I hear a lot of these economics principles. You can quickly see why this is a, an economics problem when you start getting into all of the gamification, not gamification, the sort of gameable aspects and the strategies and the equilibrium. And I like that term, no justified envy. That's really interesting. So, you know, on the Avella Explore side, you're mentioning how families of privilege usually have access to more resources. They may be on, you know, forums or sharing strategies or working in groups. And I imagine that because you're so equity centered, Avella Explore is meant to be, you know, accessible to families from all backgrounds. I'm curious what you're doing and what has been done in school districts to make sure that Avella itself is not only available to those who have the cultural capital to sort of find it. Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, we're a for-profit organization because we believe that's the best way to commercialize the technology, scale and have the impact we want and be able to hire the best talent that I'm you know, so proud of the team that we've attracted. But you're right. There's kind of this question of, well, how can you be for profit, but also for equity? And I think there's a really clever piece of our strategy, which is we sell directly to the school district or the state, or in a lot of cases, a, a large nonprofit that sits adjacent to the school district, you know, Harbor Master or quarter, quarterback organization. And they then offer it to everyone for free. And so Abella Explore, you know, we don't charge any family. That's available for free to everyone. We sell it to the school district who then makes it available. And this is different than, you know, there are nonprofits that offer sort of school finder like tools. And I think they each have their pros and cons, but a lot of them have to make money from ads, which, you know, who's going to advertise is going to be the, the affluent private schools uh, or some charter schools. And so that kind of results in a bias there. And also they rely on publicly available data, which often includes accountability scores, which are very important. But the problem is there's a lot of bias in those accountability scores. You know, they tend to report on test outcomes. And we know that for kind of previous discussion, more affluent schools are going to have better test scores because they have a lot of other resources that go into them. 
and magnet schools and schools that have sort of criteria to get in are also going to result in better test scores because they're selecting kids with better test scores coming in. So neither of these actually says anything about the quality of the school or the impact that school is going to have on your kids. And so because we work directly with the school district and we're able to get kind of more inside information, we're able to show the information that we think is going to help families make the best choice. Uh, We're also able to get a lot more detail about a curriculum, course offerings, mentorship availability, and that sort of thing that the sort of public aggregators aren't able to get. Yeah, it's really compelling. That makes a lot of sense. So it becomes almost a public good because the purchaser of the Avella suite, of the Avella Enroll suite, are districts. And then every individual family you know, in the district gets access to these school finders and resources and gets to be able to explore and see the different data and cut it in all sorts of different ways. It's a really interesting model. Well, the other thing I would add, which is something that I think in Silicon Valley, we don't think about a lot because we we take modern technology for granted. But the truth is most tools that are available to families that school district use are a bit outdated and aren't as mobile friendly, you know, aren't accessible, aren't available in their preferred language. And so being sort of a new company, we've built from the ground up to be mobile first, highly accessible, and multilingual. And so you're welcome to check out, actually, you know, New Orleans Public Schools uses our school finder. Newark is using it, Seattle, Hartford, a number of districts. Open it up on your mobile phone. It is just, it's built for a mobile device first. It's built to support pretty much every language we use, you know, Google Translate for machine translation. So you can pick any language you want, and it's built to be highly accessible. And this actually turns out to be one of the biggest selling points. I'm continually surprised at how mobile-driven families are these days. About 70% of families apply to school for their kid entirely on their mobile device. They're filling out the application. And so that's why we actually designed for mobile first. It's really smart and it makes a lot of sense. You mentioned earlier the idea of, you know, being able to apply for a school with a child in one hand or, you know, during a commute or anything like that. And it sounds like the mobile strategy is really designed for exactly that kind of use case. You know, busy parents who have all sorts of restrictions on their ability to actually sit down in front of a, you know, a big home computer and scroll around a map and double click on things. And I think that's, I'm sure that's a real game changer in terms of people's access to a tool like this. Yeah, and actually, Chalkbeat called it the Zillow for schools. Uh, and I think it's similar. It's designed to be, you know, you can go through and you can actually bookmark schools that are interesting for you. And, and we have sort of a shopping cart type experience or a short list of bookmarks. And you can actually email that list yourself or text it yourself or a partner. And so you can even have kind of a collaboration with other guardians to look through schools. Do you see a lot of students using it themselves? You know, we don't see as many. Now, we don't do... As I mentioned, we're sort of a B2B strategy. So we don't do any kind of parent or family acquisition ourselves. And that's actually part of our strategy is that, you know, ultimately, you know, we care a lot about the family and the student. But our strategy is to start with the large districts. In order to apply to a school in New Orleans, you'll need to have an account on Avella. And New Orleans Public Schools is pushing out this tool to families. We actually save all of that kind of cost of customer acquisition on the end user side which is why we start with the large districts. But so far, we haven't seen as many. Although that said, I don't know that we would necessarily know. You know, the accounts are always created by the parents. So when it comes to actually applying, a parent has to create that account. But I suppose it could be children actually browsing on Explore. We wouldn't actually know. 
<laughs> yeah, it's, it's just interesting to think about. It's a different dynamic for a student to be able to use a Zillow-like interface to look at the schools in their in their district. It just feels like a whole new world. I like how you're thinking too, because I think imagine if a kid, you know, especially to take high school, like imagine if a student could pick their own high school that the agency that would give them and saying, "I wanted this," you know, I didn't get assigned to the school, I didn't get stuck with the school, like I picked the school and you know, you kind of involve them in those trade-offs. Like this school offers this athletic program, but doesn't offer band or it offers this extracurricular or this art class. And to actually, I think the earlier you can bring a kid into kind of self-determining their own educational path, you know, as we start thinking about some of the lifelong learning that we've both been working on, the earlier you can start to build that seed and get kids involved, I think the better. Exactly. Help determine your own criteria of what a successful education looks like for you. I think it could just strike some really interesting conversations. I wanted to dig into something you said earlier, which is, you know, you mentioned that Abella is starting with big public districts. And, you know, when you think about this sort of enrollment suite where you have an explore tool and application capture and management matching where you can think about admissions and lotteries and, you know, how to get a student body you can think of a whole lot of different possible use cases for some of these tools. I'm curious. I know that you're a startup and you don't want to, you know, bite off more than you can chew, but I'm curious how these conversations have happened internally about what are some adjacent use cases that might be interesting for Avella. You're exactly right. And I think it's one of the things I'm so excited about is that there is huge opportunity. And that you're right. This is probably one of the most passionate debates we have internally across the whole company and the board is like, how quickly should we go into higher education? How quickly go into scholarships. You know, we've met with a number of scholarship organizations and common application platforms and universities. For now, we've decided to pause on kind of post-secondary and higher. Well, even that's not entirely true. We actually already have expanded, you know, Teach for America uses our platform to help match incoming core members, which are essentially, you know, recent college graduates to schools as teachers. So we're that matching that system. We also work with the U.S. Army and the military to match ROTC, ROTC graduates and West Point graduates into their units. And, you know, working with other nonprofits in Ecuador and Peru, we do teacher matching. They have a national, you know, teacher match. So we are already getting kind of pulled in different directions, but all of these, what they have in common is, you know, it is ultimately matching students or recent graduates with opportunities. And so I mentioned when we started the organization, we thought of it as we're matching, you know, we thought we were going to be kind of talent matching. It's all about matching people to opportunities. That's still something that's very much on our radar. But for now, we've said of all the different matching we could do, the thing we're most passionate about and where we just saw the most need was helping families find the right school for their kids. Now, to kind of the like starting with big urban schools, the strategy there is that we want to create a network effect to help us grow. And so we're selling to the big districts. You know, these are often long sales cycles with RFPs. Because they have the biggest need, right? They have tens of thousands of families that are applying. They often have some level of choice. They have magnet school programs with admission criteria. So there's the highest need there. But from there, we're going to move, I don't know what the term, not down market, but, you know, just smaller educational organizations within that community. Could be the charter schools, could be a CMO, could be an after school program, could be an enrichment program or a summer camp or a CTE program and say, Hey, you know, why don't we be your application system as well? In addition to all the other benefits, mobile first and accessible and localized and easy to use and delightful, by the way, 100% of your students or prospects are already using our system and have an account on our system because they just applied to the public school. 
So by using our system, they can now apply to your program with one click. And so I'm certain we're not the first ones that have this idea of creating kind of a single application. I mean, there's the Common App for college, of course. But I think what a lot of those systems, they approached it either by trying to agree on a single application structure, like we're going to all use the same application, or they tried to start with the parents or kind of the end users and say, we want to aggregate as many of you on the platform as possible and then connect you to systems. Our strategy is to actually sell directly to the mission-driven organization or the the school, the educational organization, get them on our platform. That gives us the families. And then from there, we can expand to you know, other players in the community and say, well, why don't you use the same platform? And eventually we can go to, you know, YMCA and say, hey, why don't you use our platform? And we're already getting pulled, you know, back kind of to your question as well. In Louisiana, they're asking, why don't we use you for our statewide scholarship program? So that's something that we're going to be doing. And then one of our clients just asked, well, golly, why don't we use this for our SNAPS program, our food stamps? And actually, why don't we have all of our government services on this platform? And, and <laughs> you know, this is one of those exciting things where, like, I hadn't even thought of that. Like, maybe Avella is, it's more than just, you know, school enrollment and education. Maybe it's, like, all government services. Like, maybe it's everything that a parent or family might sign up for for their kid or even for themselves. Because it's a lot of the same questions. You know, it's the same demographic and biographic information. A lot of these programs have income eligibility requirements for voucher programs or Head Start funding or other funding programs for food stamps. So we're already collecting a lot of that information. A lot of these programs have residency requirements. You've got to submit a bank statement or a copy of your utility bill to prove that you live where you say you live and you're eligible. A lot of them require immunization records or health records. A lot of them require a birth certificate. And so actually, if we already have all this information and we've helped the family collate it, Anyone we work with now, they can apply with that sort of one click. So I see a lot of opportunity. And so it's constantly a, a discussion of how quickly do we expand. But right now, we're focusing all of our sort of outbound effort on education organizations, school districts. Um, but we definitely are opportunistically pursuing kind of things that come to us. So interesting. So just, I mean, just to synopsize for a moment, because you went, there were so many different interesting adjacent opportunities there. You're already working with Teach for America for teacher matching. You're thinking about higher ed. You're thinking about scholarships, internships. I'll put in apprenticeships, even though I don't think you said that. Oh, no, absolutely. Sure. There's all these government programs that require the same information. And you're sort of looking, I love this idea of the strategy of, I mean, it's a strategy, but it's also hugely beneficial to the end user of, hey, if you're going to put together all of this information into a platform to apply to your public schools, well, here's all these other opportunities that are available to you, scholarship opportunities, vouchers, you know, all sorts of things. And with one click, like you mentioned, an Apple Pay or a sort of LinkedIn apply style, you can just apply to them and then give them access to the same information and put yourself on their list. It's very compelling and I, pretty exciting. I can imagine why some of your current clients are sort of letting their minds, but you know, letting their brainstorming flags up and saying, oh, we could use it for this. We could use it for that. ROTC is a use case I definitely did not expect you to say. That is a really interesting one, but sure, why not? Yeah, exactly. I think that's well said. And I think the LinkedIn example is exactly right. It's this idea of you can apply to many different things with the same information. Sure. So you really have an enrollment mindset. And one of the things that we've seen, you know, come out of the news recently is this idea that public 
school enrollments have been down in a lot of states. There was a report just last week that said, I think it was a 2% total decrease in total you know, public K-12 enrollments over the pandemic era. A lot of people whose kids were pulled out of school for various reasons are not going back. That's even more true in uh, states that had more remote learning. And, you know, we're in a little bit of a strange moment for enrollment. I'd love to hear you talk about Avella's advantage, you know, what you're offering to districts or schools in terms of helping ensure that they enroll the kids they need. You've hit on a very important trend that I just want to pause on that. And then I'll answer your question. There is a huge trend happening, which is education is moving from a local monopoly to a competitive market. Right. It used to be that a school was guaranteed a certain number of students based on where it was located. And they cared a lot about population forecasting and population forecasting was enrollment forecasting. But there's been a huge rise in alternatives. A lot of this before the pandemic with the growth of online opportunities and charter schools and private schools. And then the pandemic really accelerated that. A lot of people moved to online, to homeschooling. We also saw a rise in pod schooling and micro schooling and Montessori programs. And so schools now need to compete. And so, as you mentioned, the result is that the public school system is seeing it in decline, especially in the large urban districts. And in the large cities like LA, Chicago, New York, it's as much as 7% across the board. And it's even more pronounced in kindergarten, where it can be up to 20%. And early indications are that a lot of those kids that they lost in kindergarten aren't coming back. So this is a burning fire. And actually, it also gets to why we decided to start in this area. Because when you sell the education, you know, you can't be a nice to have, you know, there's that trope about, you know, you want to be a painkiller and not a vitamin. That is super true in education. There's a lot of challenges and they're under-resourced. And so you need to solve a problem that is a hair on fire problem. And right now, declining enrollment is a hair on fire problem. And part of that is because that is you know, existential, that drives the unit economics. It's the way every school in the country makes money is, you know, a certain amount of money per pupil times enrollment. Private schools call that tuition, you know, it's tuition times enrollment, but public schools get a per pupil funding from state, local, and federal sources times enrollment. Uh, And sometimes it's based on attendance as well. And so as enrollment declines, that means less money is going to the school, which means they can't pay for teachers and can't expand facilities and so forth. And so that's a problem that we really help them solve as we help public school districts, but really everyone. I mean, we don't currently work with private schools, but we, we will very shortly, um, but we help everyone put their best foot forward. We want all families to be able to pick the right school for their children. And I think in some degrees, public schools will benefit the most because they're the ones that probably haven't had these marketing resources. I mean, private schools have been used to having to compete for kids and they've, they've had marketing teams and enrollment teams, but public schools haven't necessarily had that. And so we're providing them some of those same tools that the private schools have had for a while. And I think this also gets to, you know, one of our strengths as a business and what helped us in our recent fundraise as well is that, you know, in ed tech, so much of the per pupil funding, and it varies a lot by state, but it's gone up from about $15,000 per student to about $20,000 per student per year that's spent in, uh, in public education. The vast majority of that goes to teacher salaries and administrative personnel a little bit to facilities and a little bit to instructional materials. And so there's actually a very small sliver that's left over for ed tech. And so all of ed tech, you know, whether it's a classroom behavioral management tool or, you know, curriculum or supplemental education, it's all competing for the same sliver of funding. Well, we actually sort of 
sell not to the cost center. We're not trying to take a sliver of that. We're selling to sort of the revenue center, the enrollment center, the people that are responsible for growing the total revenue by increasing the number of students. And so that has really helped us continue to thrive during the pandemic and grow even during this sort of period of economic uncertainty, because we're selling to the revenue center and solving that hair on fire problem. Really, really thorough and informative explanation there. I really appreciate it. I'm sure our listeners do as well. And, you know, that idea of a competitive landscape for public schooling that, you know, a public school may have to go out and convince a family that the public school is a more effective or fun or interesting or affordable option than a micro school or than online schooling or than the charter school is really not something they've had to do historically. That is so far out of the wheelhouse, in my understanding, of how public schools tend to think about their role. So it's really interesting to sort of look forward and think about a landscape in which that it's really almost like a, you know, a marketplace, which we really haven't had historically in the U.S. Yeah, I think that's well said. It is creating an marketplace of educational opportunities. And I think there's a lot of great schools out there that will benefit from this. I think, and that, you know, to kind of our previous discussion, a lot of the marketplaces that have existed have really been weighted toward accountability metrics and test scores, which really just tell you the socioeconomic status of student population. It doesn't tell you anything about what makes that school special. And so I'm hoping this movement toward a more competitive landscape and an open market means that schools can show off what makes them special. You know, whether it's their academic programs or their after-school programs or their sports or their music programs or their arts programs, the type of instruction that they do. And so I think public schools will do quite well because I think they do have a lot to offer. And this will actually help them demonstrate that. Yeah. So I want to shift gears. We have a few minutes left. And, you know, you've been in a really interesting moment. You just mentioned sort of in passing that you've been doing a fundraise. Avella is a new venture, but it partners with Nobel Prizes, which is very unusual. I'd love to just hear we have a lot of edtech entrepreneurs as listeners to the podcast. And I'd love to hear you just talk a little bit about what it's like to be a, you know, really interesting, amazing idea, ed tech startup in, you know, 2022 right now. What's it like to fundraise? How did you think about your branding? How did you think about, you know, getting Avella to a place where you can actually really get the funds and the springboard you need to grow? Yeah, you know, we're fortunate to have wrapped up the round that I think we, it was a tough fundraising environment. So I think we're fortunate to do well. You know, I will say the fundraising process, entrepreneurs often fear it, but it was incredibly valuable. If we had had this interview six months ago, or, you know, definitely a year ago, but even six months, I think my answers would have been very different because I thought of ourselves a lot more narrow. And when you speak to investors, you know, investors aren't interested in an enrollment platform. They want something much bigger and they really help you tease that out. Like, you know, what's really the insight in your idea? What's your bigger picture? Like, what is the, you know, the billion dollar opportunity here, but what's the like change the world, you know, especially at the venture scale. And I think a lot of educational entrepreneurs have to grapple with this question of like, am I really a venture scale business or should I go for alternative capital, revenue-based financing, private equity capital, but venture capital really has very specific return expectations and needs a very fast growth. And so, you know, my first several dozen pitches, and luckily I, I think I started with kind of friends and family and people I trusted, people that I could embarrass myself with. But they asked me hard questions that I didn't have good answers to. And they, you know, kept challenging me on the market size and how big can this get? And how is this going to change the world? And it pushed me to think a lot bigger. And I'm still working on this. I actually think the process of fundraising was invaluable to our company and to me as an entrepreneur to be able to really tap into those ideas and and the long-term vision. 
you know, so we were fortunate to raise about five and a half million in this round. We'd already raised a million kind of pre-seed from a lot of fantastic entrepreneurs, including Hulu and Cherubic, Urban Innovation Fund, Learn Capital, and a lot of fantastic angels, plus Schmidt Futures, who was our original investor. I think two things that really made the round a success for us, well, three, I'll say one is the fact that we were finally able to really figure out the like big picture that we're competing for being a universal application for everything. And there's also an opportunity to really expand and displace you know, the power schools of the world. Because once we get in there, you know, we can become the sort of back office operation system for schools and districts. Um, and so power school and frontline and blackball, like to actually show that there are multi-billion dollar publicly traded companies out there in this space, that actually gave investors a lot of confidence. The second thing is, I think the, and I don't quite know what to call it, the period of economic uncertainty, the fundraising winter, which I think we're sort of getting out of it, but there was certainly a several month period in there where people were nervous and, and tightening up. I think that affected the startups that had the highest multiples, right? The things that were sort of the quote unquote sexiest. So like crypto, you know, Web3, AR, VR, metaverse, and then a lot of like tech enabled services, I think got hit the hardest because they probably had the most lofty valuations. Ed tech has never been sexy to investors, unfortunately. <laughs> you know, maybe some area, you know, the Corsairs of the world, some of the more consumer, almost edutainment, those have been interesting, but sort of traditional, I mean, K-12 education technology software has never been sexy. And I think had always been like, ah, it doesn't quite have the same, you know, $100 billion upside. Like, okay, it could be a billion dollar business, but could it be a hundred billion? I think that mindset shifted and actually like, oh, wait, you're bringing in like real revenue, like your cash flow positive at a year old, you're competing for multi-million dollar RFPs and five-year contracts. So I think the things that had made ed tech feel slightly less sexy in a very frothy market, actually in a potential downturn became quite attractive. The fact that we were you know, profitable or cash flow positive at the time we were fundraising and had a very clear path to revenue and very clear unit economics and very clear go-to-market strategy and cost of customer acquisition and could show these RFPs of school districts asking for what we were selling. In some ways, we were a lot less risky. And so I think more capital started to flow to these, you know, maybe less sexy, but, you know, stronger business model. I think the pandemic and this kind of fundraising winter has shown the rise of solid business models and business plans. Fantastic answer. Really, really interesting. You know, I think your line earlier, you know, Zillow for schools sort of covers a lot of it, right? I mean, that's an idea that is both sort of infrastructural and a little bit sexy and consumery at the same time. And I can see why it's sort of really interesting for investors and why. And I will say, you know, I, I actually did speak to you about six months ago. And I can say from experience, this idea has gotten a whole lot more uh, bigger picture and tighter and thought it's really impressive to see the shaping of it. And, you know, it's exciting. You know, Greg, I wish I had more time. We're coming on the end of our time. I wanted to ask you the questions. I know you'll have great answers to them. The questions we end every podcast with. What do you see as one of the most exciting trends in the ed tech landscape that everybody should keep an eye on? And I know we already talked a little bit about, you know, the rise of alternative schooling. You can still go there if you'd like, but what do you think is right around the next corner? I'm trying to think how to not repeat the same answer again. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. Sorry. I, I sort of painted you in the corner there on that one. <laughs> I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, the biggest trend I see is the increase in alternative schooling, the competitive marketplace, more options for families. You know, another one that I'll point to that I think is important is that there's an increased focus on parental rights, curriculum transparency, and really parent engagement. And I think 
this can be challenging. I think, unfortunately, schools and districts are at the forefront of a lot of cultural wars, certainly around masking and vaccine mandates and critical race theory. So there's a lot we have to work out there. But I think this is also an opportunity. I mean, educators have been hoping for parents to get more involved, to come to school board meetings. You know, school board meetings used to be a very kind of dry meeting, and we wanted parents to get involved, and now they are. And unfortunately, there's a lot of you know social media bias and influence, and the media, of course, is trying to make everything kind of extreme. And so I think there's some education we have to do. But I think this is also a big opportunity to engage parents who are taking a renewed interest and like asking about the curriculum. Like, when has this happened before? And so, yeah, it's harder because we now need to actually explain the curriculum and why we're using the books we're using and why we have these policies we do. But I think this is also opens up a huge opportunity to become closer to the parents, engage the parents in their child's education and connect with the community more. Super interesting. Yeah. We talk on our uh, Weekend Ed Tech podcast pretty frequently about the uh, culture wars and the sort of political polarization that is starting to show up at school board meetings and, you know, demands to see curriculum. And they've been, you know, there's a big uh, banning of a Toni Morrison book this week, and it's becoming a really fraught environment. But I like your take that it's sort of positive and at least people are uh, paying attention to what happens in school. <laughs> there's something good about that. And uh, lastly, what is one resource that you would recommend to our listeners? It can be a book, a blog, a newsletter, a report for anyone who wants to go deeper into some of the uh, topics we talked about today. I'll give a couple quick ones. One is a fantastic article by the Center for American Progress by Ulrich Bosser and Meg Brenner. And actually, Prague is interviewed in that. It's a nerdy article about student assignment algorithms. And so if that's of interest, I highly recommend that. Al Roth, who I mentioned, was Prague's advisor who won the Nobel Prize. He wrote a fantastic book called Who Gets What and Why. Really, actually fairly easy read for such a complex topic, but describes how economists think about allocating scarce resources when money can't be used. So things like kidneys or seats in public schools, even things like parking permits and hunting permits. So really interesting. And one other one that I would offer more to the entrepreneurs in the group is one of the beauties of selling to large governments, public schools, districts, is that large purchases have to go to RFP or request for proposal. And while this is the bane of many of our existence and it elongates sales cycles uh, and can increase cost of customer acquisition, but it's also a fantastic source of information about school districts' needs. And so obviously you should go interview hundreds of administrators or teachers or whoever your, your audience is. But in addition, you can go back and there's archives of all these RFPs. And basically school districts are telling you exactly what they want. Now, I think the sort of you know famous Henry Ford analogy is very applicable here. You know, they're all asking for faster horses. And so you have to read between the lines and go, that doesn't mean what they need is a faster horse, they need the car. But at least it's people telling you in their own words, you know, what their problems are and what they think they need. Fantastic. We will put links to the Center for American Progress article, the Al Roth book, Who Gets What and Why, and to an archive of district RFPs. It sounds like some fun reading. It would be very useful for entrepreneurs and those interested in schools in the show notes for this episode. Greg Bybee from Avella, thank you so much and best of luck with all your you know, amazing (laughs) adjacent ideas. You're going to be the matchmaker of the world. (laughs) Thank you, Alex. I appreciate it. It's great chatting. Thanks for listening to this episode of the EdTech Insiders podcast. If you liked the episode, remember to subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
And if you're listening on Apple, please leave a rating and review so others can find the podcast. For more EdTech Insiders content, subscribe to the EdTech Insiders newsletter at edtechinsiders.substack.com.